hppodcraft.com. But, my dear, said Mrs. Colverin with a tiny gasp, you can't actually mean a tail. Mrs. Dingle nodded impressively. Exactly. I've seen him. Twice. Paris, of course, and then a command appearance at Rome. We were in the royal box. He conducted. My dear, you've never heard such effect from an orchestra. And, my dear, she hesitated slightly. He conducted with it. How perfectly fascinatingly too horrid for words, said Mrs. Colverin in a dazed but greedy voice. We must have him to dinner as soon as he comes over. He is coming over, isn't he? Oh my, that was the perfectly delightful opening of The King of the Cats by Stephen Vincent Benet. Oh, wasn't it positively bewitching? A man with a tail simply ravishing. <laughs> People with tails. When I started reading this story, I immediately hit the interwebs to see if there were actually people with tails, like if mm. that was a real thing that happened. Oh, go on. Uh, <laughs> and there are, but not many. It's very rare. And not what you think of as tails. They kind of seem more like growths. <gasps> growths, you say? Oh, how delectable! <laughs> and, you know, we're all about growth here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chris <laughs> Lackey. <laughs> That's true. I am Chad Pfeiffer. We are here at hppodcraft.com and Patreon to discuss a tale about a tale. <laughs> oh, how droll! <laughs> Such dry amusements! <laughs> <laughs> All right. I promise I won't do that the whole episode, but I got to say, oh. I do like society ladies. I like them when they're gossiping and one-upping each other. Oh, sure. That's my favorite kind of thing. In fact, like slapstick comedies, those play like horror movies to me. What do you mean? Margaret Dumont's about to have a nice dinner party with all the other society chicks, and then the Marx Brothers come in, oh, like geez, home yeah. invaders. Yeah. Harpo looks like a Central Park masturbator. and <laughs> Groucho's drawn all over. I mean, I know people assume that it's a mustache, but look at him when he comes in. He's drawn all over his face. If that was lipstick, you'd be screaming. A lot of people don't know this, but that movie, The Strangers, that home invasion movie, yeah, uh -huh. that's actually a remake of Animal Crackers. Oh, okay. True, true sure. fact. Wow, I did not true know fact. that. Yes. Speaking of society broads, our reader this week is one Heather Clinky of the Santa Monica Clinkies. She keeps winding up on these cat shows. If you remember, she did a full reading of The Cats of Ulthar by Lovecraft back in the day. I not only remember, I look back fondly on those listenings. <laughs> well, we should be adding that uh, reading to our YouTube page pretty soon. Yes, we will. Please check us out over there, youtube.com slash witchhousemedia. We're slowly adding our full readings as well as some, some classic episodes of the show, the ones we've been reposting on social media. That's right. Most of these readings feature original art by one Mr. Chris Lackey. Ooh, how ribald! Uh, yeah, I'm taking the pen out again. I'm going crazy. <laughs> I love it. The King of the Cats by Stephen Vincent Benet. We haven't done anything by this author. Uh, what do we know about him? Well, Mr. Benet was born in 1898 in Pennsylvania. He was from a military family, so he went to military school when he was 10 years old. Uh, he went on to Yale, where it was said he was the power behind Yale Lit. That's according to schoolmate Thornton Wilder. Yeah. They were there in school together. He of Our Town fame. You remember that play? That's right, you? yeah. You were, you were in that play. Yeah, we were in it, weren't we? We were in that play, yeah. Benet published his first book when he was 17 years old, a book of poetry. He was also a part-time contributor to Time magazine, and he married the writer-poet Rosemary Carr. Uh, he is best known for his book-length narrative poem of the American Civil War called John Brown's Body for which he won a Pulitzer Prize in 1929. 
And he's also known for the short stories The Devil and Daniel Webster. You've heard of that, mm-hmm. assuredly, yeah. from 1936 and By the Waters of Babylon from 1937. In 2009, the Library of America selected his story, The King of the Cats, this story, from 1929 for inclusion in its two-century retrospective of American Fantastic Tales, edited by Peter Straub. The story was also included, along with a few recent others we've covered in Dashiell Hammett's anthology, Creeps by Night. That's where I pulled it from. Strangely, Benet also adapted the Roman myth, The Rape of the Sabine Women, into a story called Sabin Women, which <laughs> was then adapted into a movie musical, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Wow. That's quite a, that's a jump, huh? <laughs> I did not know that Seven Brides for Seven Brothers was based on the Roman myth of the rape of the Sabine women. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at the poster for it, actually, I think it's a man carrying away a bride over his shoulder. Yeah. Which is what that's all about. I mean, rape in the context of that myth is about uh, abduction. Yeah. I haven't seen Seven Brides for Seven Brothers since I was a kid, but I wish they'd gone with that original title, Sobbing Women. <laughs> but you see, movies do have strange origins. That's like true. I was talking about with The Strangers. You know that movie Event Horizon we've talked about on the show a few times? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's sure. actually based on a Three Stooges movie called Whoops, I'm an Indian. <laughs> How? How could that possibly have anything to do with that? Something got lost in translation or added. Watch them both and you'll see. Benet died at the age of 44, (sighs) which is shocking to me. I have a heart attack. Yeah, that's my age, man. Yeah, I know. We just did this bonus episode on cat people, and we were talking about Val Luton in there, and I don't remember if we said it or not, but he accomplished all these things, worked on all these movies. He died of a heart attack at 46. Oh, no, he didn't mention that. Yeah, pretty young, which you would think he was older because of all that he accomplished, but yeah, 46. Wow. I guess it's just dangerous doing this cat work. (laughs) Yes, that's the cause of it. This story is based on a British folktale, but we'll get into that as we discuss the story. You know, Michael Jackson, he he was a were-cat in that thriller video. Right. Dead at 50. Okay. It's dangerous work. uh, Let's get into the story. Hopefully nobody gets harmed in the discussion of the king of the cats. (sighs) Like I don't have enough anxiety already. (laughs) I need this in my life. So this story begins. Now, see, I'm I'm hesitant to talk about this story. You know that Disney movie, The Cat from Outer Space? Yes. Everybody who worked on that movie died in a roller coaster accident. (laughs) All of them. Was it the same roller coaster ride? Separate Roller coaster accidents <laughs> over time. I'm just Hollywood myth making here, man. I'm Hollywood myth making. <laughs> let's get it. Let's get into the story. <laughs> this story begins in a parlor of some kind in New York City. Two older women, Mrs. Emily Dingle and Mrs. Culverin, are talking about this orchestra conductor, Monsieur Tebolt. He is an amazing conductor, and he has a cat-like tail. He is. <laughs> Coming to do a performance in New York that these women are involved in putting together. Yeah. Well, I don't even know if they're organizing it. They're just more like celebrity snoggers, I guess is a polite way to say it. Sure. He's going to be coming to conduct because he's been touring the world. A very famous guy's been all over Europe. And it seems like these ladies glom on to celebrities when they come to New York. They make sure to invite them to their parties. And it's all about getting the selfie. And it, it, it seems like even in the past, these two are talking in the beginning have had some kind of bad blood or competition about a British novelist who was in town for a while. Oh. So this is sort of a pastime for them. And this Monsieur Tubalt, it's he's not just a talent, he's also got a tail, right? as you mentioned. So he's bringing like a freak show element to it on top of being a star. Mm-hmm. And of course, as in many of the creature feature stories we've done in the past, he's got a feline name, Tybalt. They say he's descended from the Tybalt in Romeo and Juliet. That Tybalt in that play He's an adversary to Romeo in that place. He's jokingly referred a number of times to as uh, the Prince of Cats. 
And that's because Tybalt is also the name of a cat in Reynard the Fox, which is a medieval collection of fables about anthropomorphic animals. So this guy's name goes all the way back to that. It's a little deep. you got to look for it. But wow. it's basically the same as having our werewolf character, you know, back in Dora the Unreal, who was what, Professor Lycurgus Wolf. You know? <laughs> it's that same thing that happens all the time in these stories. They are there at this party with Mrs. Dingle's adult nephew, Tommy Brooks, and he's not impressed with Monsieur Tabal. Yes, he's got a little more of a commonplace attitude about it. He says, do you really mean this Tybalt bozo has a tail, like a monkey and everything? Tommy is confused about the exact nature of the tail. Is it a cat's? Is it a monkey's? Mrs. Dingle doesn't know precisely, but he actually conducts with the tail. Tommy is finding this tail thing really hard to believe, but Mrs. Dingle has seen him perform in Paris and in Rome, so he knows that she's not lying. It's just kind of ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Tommy then speaks to another person, Professor Tato. Tommy asks him if a person could really have a tail, and the professor says, well, I've never met him, but it could be possible. There are legends all throughout history of animal people, so maybe there is something to this. He says the 18th century, a Dutch... Again, it's the Dutch. Mm -hmm. Sea captain, with some character for veracity, recounts the discovery of a pair of such creatures in the island of Hermosa. Mm -hmm. And in 1860, Dr. Grimbrook, the English surgeon, claims to have treated no less than three African natives with short but evident tails. Also, webbed feet, rudimentary gills, these occur with some frequency in humans. The professor's explanation is enough for Mrs. Dingle, and she speaks to yet another person we didn't know was there, Princess Viva Canarda. She seems very interested in Mr. Monsieur Tubalt, and that annoys Tommy. She is a very exotic beauty. It says the Princess Viva Canarda's eyes, blue as a field of larkspur, fathomless as the center of heaven. That's our first look at her. Tommy says, well, I hope he breaks his neck (laughs) under his breath, of course. But nobody ever paid much attention to Tommy. Seems Tommy has a thing for the princess and she keeps him around. They don't go into much direct explanation of what she's a princess of, but it's implied that she's maybe Siamese or Polynesian. Uh, She's young and rich and has connections in the royal family of Siam. And she's, of course, very beautiful. Yes, she's youthful, enormously wealthy, allied on the one hand to the royal family of Siam and on the other to the Cabots, which is a real East Coast family that's very wealthy, Mm -hmm. and says, and yet with the first 18 of her 21 years shrouded from speculation in a golden zone of mystery. Mm -hmm. So they know about her now, but her childhood, nobody knew anything about this person. So maybe she came from a a mysterious place. I don't know. But definitely, I think she's definitely Siamese princess with Western money. And she's used to being the center of attention because after all, it says it was a Siamese season. That's the thing that's all the rage right now in the upper crust parlors of New York. There's a Siamese art theater that's playing to packed houses and the pet dealers are getting an overwhelming demand for Siamese cats. That's what everybody wants. Siam is, of course, the old name uh, for Thailand, pre-1939. And this princess is also mixed race. And even though the story came out in 29, there's a little of this that might sound odd, but actually I think it's complementary of mixed race heritage for once. It says, the mingling of races in her had produced an exotic beauty as distinguished as it was strange. She moved with a feline, effortless grace, and her skin was as if it had been gently powdered with tiny grains of the purest gold. Yet the blueness of her eyes, set just a trifle slantingly, was as pure and startling as the sea on the rocks of Maine. Her hair had a vague perfume of sandalwood and suave spices and held tints of rust and the sun. Hmm. I I think these descriptions kind of betray a jealousy that's going on throughout the story. Mm -hmm. She's got it all, not just the money and status, but she's also got this exotic 
beauty. She's not like anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that this is set up, it's a satire of a society that's somewhat absurd in their desperation for the exotic. Though they hold themselves above everybody, that creates a kind of homogenous character. Mm-hmm. These, these wealthy people in New York society. And so they covet something like this. In this respect, it's a little like our last story, The Kill, in which the protagonist was slumming it a bit. You know, he's he's looking on average people below his station as sort of a curiosity. Mm-hmm. It's that idea of people who are wealthy seeing the rest of the world as a menagerie or a, a zoo. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a little of that going on as well. So, uh, of course, the princess, she sleeps a lot, mostly during the day. She has a lazy quality about her, but all of these attributes that are being applied to her are cat-like. That's right. So Tommy is in love with her, but she doesn't seem interested in any of the suitors that have approached her. Tommy is the only one that she's shown any interest in at all, and that still is very little. And as we said, Tommy is painfully average. I mean, even his name, Tommy Brooks, as composed of Princess Ramalaka Chama or whatever her name is. You know? <laughs> it says he was one, he was just one of those pleasant, normal young men who seemed to who seem created to carry on the bond of business by reading the newspapers in the university club during most of the day. Can always be relied upon at night to fill an unexpected hole in a dinner party. Which is pretty rough. Yeah. Basically, he's just been described as a seat warmer. So Tommy goes with the princess to M. Tobalt's performance at Carnegie Hall. Mrs. Dingle is with them and she hushes Tommy as M. Tobalt comes on stage. Uh, this was an odd bit that seemed out of place for the general jocularity of the story. Mm. It seemed to the startled Tommy as if he were suddenly back in the trenches under a heavy barrage as M. Tobalt made his entrance to a perfect bombardment of applause. Yeah, that is a little out of place, but it also, it's a pretty cool little effect that Benet pulls off there because we just learned something about Tommy when we got behind his eyes for a second. So up till then, everything seems to be the observation of the general society people that he's around in terms of his blandness and what he seemed to be made for. But here we find out he's a veteran, and in fact, he's a veteran that saw some combat. So there's a depth of experience there, but it's not perceived to be of worth to these folks. A tale is much more interesting, you know? Right, yeah. There's a comment there, I think. Well, and there's also a bit of bigotry on my part as well. Like, I made all these assumptions about who this guy was, that he was just some socialite kind of knob, boring dude. And this guy experienced some traumatic stuff in the war, fighting for our country. So setting up an expectation and then kind of subverting it. Yes, exactly. So out walks M. Tubalt and yep, he's got a tail. He's dressed all in black, black shirt even, not just a black tuxedo, but black tie, black everything. He's very handsome and his tail is curled around one of his wrists. That shirt being black that was given to him by Mussolini. And of course the black shirts, that was the core of the fascist organization that he started in Italy. Oh my God. And that the black shirts were in the midst of coming to power when the story was written. So it's always odd to read something pre-war. Oh, right. Yeah, of so, course. You know, they, they would not have known yet how that was going to turn out. Right. That's where the black shirt he's wearing came from. Oof. It's got a bit darker. <laughs> yeah. So this guy knows how to play a crowd. He's got the magic. He's got the confidence, the presence. He's great. And then there's something about this guy in his manner that reminds Tommy of the princess. <laughs> kind of know where this is going. <laughs> right, right. So Tobalt's tail uh, whips out a baton from some hidden pocket and gets ready to start performing. But Tommy doesn't see any of this because he is watching the princess. The pose of her entire figure was so still and intense that for an instant Tommy had the lunatic idea that any moment she might leap from her seat beside him as lightly as a moth and land with no sound at M. Tubalt's side to, yes, to rub her proud head against his coat in worship. 
Even Mrs. Dingle would notice in a moment. Wow. She is enraptured by this guy. Like it's doing something to her that Tommy has not seen uh, in her before. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, this guy is awesome. Uh, People are going nuts for him. Like he's the symphonic Justin Bieber. That's the best comparison you could have made. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. Well, you know what? I do like a conductor that goes a little nuts. We actually got tickets randomly to go see Gustavo Dudamel when he became the conductor of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Uh-huh. And he, he was a very legendary guy. And when he showed up, people were very excited just like this. Ooh, you know, Gustavo Dudamel, he's a big deal. And I I mean, I was in band and stuff, but I have a kind of, well, he's just going to get up there and keep time for the orchestra, right? I know a, a conductor does much more than that. Sure. But he's going to have his back turned to us. And why are you all so thrilled? But then... When he came out and did his thing, it was just like this. He didn't have the tail, but he had a big mop of oh, hair that was he was whipping around and he was super into it. And I kind of got into it because he was into it. And so I got it. I was like, oh, this is the excitement of the conductor. Yeah, I've never felt that. <laughs> I mean, I've been to you know, many performances with lots of conductors, but sure, I've, I've never seen a superstar conductor. So maybe someday you will, man. Someday you will. Hold on to that dream. After the show, the princess and Tabalt meet and it doesn't bode well for Tommy. They don't say much to each other, which is good, but they also say a lot with looks and body language, mm-hmm. which is bad. Even yeah. Mrs. Dingle notices <laughs> the chemistry. They seem to have some deep kinship yeah and this is the key passage it says it was as if that couple were foreign indeed not only to new york but to all common humanity as if they were polite guests from a different star yeah well tamont sticks around new york for a few weeks getting closer and closer to the princess she doesn't blow off Tommy completely, but now Tobolt is just always around. It says Tobolt had the faculty of appearing as out of thin air. He walked for all his height as lightly as a butterfly, and Tommy grew to hate that faintest shuffle on the carpet that announced his presence. Tobolt is cool. He said the man was so smooth, so infernally unruffleably smooth. He was never out of temper, never embarrassed. He treated Tommy with the extreme urbanity, and yet his eyes mocked deep down, and Tommy could do nothing. So he's like a cool, a real cool guy. But maybe just having this slight undercurrent of not respecting Tommy. Tommy is so bothered by this, he has trouble sleeping. Uh, he keeps seeing Tobalt as some kind of cat man in his dreams. Tommy does have this one scary moment. He's hanging out at Mrs. Dingle's, hoping the princess will show up. He walks into the darkened library. Before he can turn the light on, he sees that Tobalt is sleeping on the couch, all curled up mm-hmm. like a cat. <laughs> he kind of swears under his breath and is going to back out of the room to leave him be when he feels eyes on him realizes Tobalt has opened his eyes. He hasn't moved anything else, but he's looking at him. It says those eyes were black and human no longer. They were green. Tommy could have sworn it. And he could have sworn that they had no bottom and gleamed like little emeralds in the dark. Hmm. Well, that was a pretty good creep by night. Yeah, I sure. mean, that was the, the one part of the story where that would be a little unsettling yeah. for somebody to do that to you in a dark sure. room. But when, he, when Tommy turns the light on, everything's back to normal. So maybe it was just his imagination. Not long after, the two of them are hanging out and a noise, a street door opening, uh, makes Tobalt jump up and he catches his sock on a sharp corner of a rail and it tears it. And under the sock, Tommy swears that he sees black fur. <laughs> that was a hilarious scene to me right on top of that creepiness because th- th- here's the thing the guy already has a tail what's the big whoop i mean even with that i guess it would still be surprising if he were part cat you would just assume it's a deformity or something but is it that surprising that he's nah. got some black fur it's like uh. hey you know dr hacula <laughs> you know the guy with the long fangs and the widow's peak well we were playing tennis the other day, and his shirt fell open, and there was a medallion hanging from his neck. <laughs> he covered it up right away, but I think, I think Dr. Dracula's a Dracula. 
That's what it would be like. But when Tubal's sock is exposed, he does react like Dracula, seeing a mirror or something. He swore violently in some spitting foreign tongue, his face distorted suddenly. He clapped his hand over his sock. Then, glaring furiously at Tommy, he fairly sprang from the room, and Tommy could hear him scaling the stairs in long, agile bounds. And then Tommy's dense response is my favorite. He thinks, good lord, did the man wear black velvet stockings under his ordinary socks? (laughs) Or could he? Could he? But here Tommy held his fevered head in his hands. I can't imagine this man could be part cat, this man with a tail. I won't allow my mind to travel to such a strange place. (laughs) So... So Tommy goes to Professor Tato uh, from the gathering at the beginning of the, right. of the story, and he tries to ask him about possible legends and things relating to cats, you know, dancing around. He doesn't want to tip his hand, but the professor's really confused by all this. Yeah, the professor can't tell him anything about it, so he decides he's going to talk to his friend Billy Strange. He says Billy was a good sort, and his mind had a turn for the bizarre. So this is totally his evil Ed, right. you know, his occultist friend. Yes. This guy he feels a little more secure with, so he tells him everything. I tell you, the man's a cat all the same. No, I don't see how he could be, but he is. <laughs> and uh, Billy Strange is dubious. He says, you know, well, a tailed man is possible, and the yarns about werewolves go back far enough. So I couldn't say there aren't or haven't been werewolves, but then I'm willing to believe more things than most people. But a were-cat? <laughs> or a man that's a cat and a cat that's a man? Honestly, Tommy. this All of this stuff is my favorite dialogue that we've had for a while. Oh. Tommy says, if I don't get some real advice, I'll go clean off my hinge. <laughs> For heaven's sake, tell me something to do. And that's slang I've never heard before. I think he's saying, I'll go out of my mind, like I'll go clean yeah. off my hinge. But when I first read it, I thought he was saying, I'll go clean off my hinge. Oh, like, like I'm going to go dirty and he needs you know, to yeah. spit polish it. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, that's, does that mean he's going to shoot himself or does that mean he's going to... You throw open the door and it goes off the hinges. No, I get it. Well, uh, Billy says, okay, this guy is a cat and the girl, she's into him because she's kind of cat-like, as you said. But that's okay with you, right? That the girl is cat-like, the princess. And uh, Tommy says, I'd marry her if she turned into a dragon every Wednesday. It, <laughs> that's an odd response, but yeah, sure. he doesn't really care if she's a cat person. He's just worried about the other guy. Tommy begs Billy to help figure out a way to get Tabalt out of the picture. And he thinks on it for a while. And then he finally laughs to himself. <laughs> he goes, I've just thought of a stunt, something so blooming crazy. <laughs> And it it is indeed crazy. He goes and he gets a book and he says, listen to this. There is a Scandinavian version of the ever famous story, which Sir Walter Scott told to Washington Irving, which Monk Lewis told to Shelley, in which in one form or another, we find embodied in the folklore of every land. Now, Tommy, pay attention. The story of the traveler who saw within a ruined abbey a procession of cats lowering into a grave a little coffin with a crown upon it. Filled with horror, he hastened from the spot. But when he had reached his destination, he could not forbear relating to a friend the wonder he had seen. Scarcely had the tale been told when his friend's cat, who lay curled up tranquilly by the fire, sprang to its feet, cried out, Then I am the king of the cats! And disappeared in a flash up the chimney. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I love that story so much. I wasn't familiar with it. That This is my first hearing the King of the Cats story, but it's great. It's a very old story, and the oldest known account of this story is from Beware the Cat by William Baldwin in 1553. Wow. And this book, Beware the Cat, is also considered to be one of the first horror novels ever published in the English language. Wow. What do you think is behind this folktale? Is it just a joke? Is it just a surprising story? It feels like a joke, because I don't see how anybody could be horrified by that. Yeah. The punchline is that what's going on with these cats and these this crown and this funeral thing, 
And then we find out that that was the king of the cats. And there's somebody really excited that <laughs> they get to become the king of the cats. Yeah, it's funny. It's a funny. It's a joke. Yeah. It's a funny. It's an amusing story because that's a really unexpected yeah, oh, yeah. twist at the end. So I could see that being like an urban legend. Anyway, Tommy is like, <laughs> you know, this plan could work. Uh, Billy's like, uh, okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally crazy plan, but I love it. I love that that's what he's going to try to do. (laughs) So Tommy has a hard time coming up with a good way to introduce the story in the party. So Billy has to kind of coach him a bit to like, he goes, well, how do I bring it up? How do I break into it? And he says, oh, well, you got to say, oh, I was walking through the park. And then strange how life imitates art. He he (laughs) has to walk him through it over and over again and basically just gives him a good tight five minute set. He does give him a tight five-minute set. And Tommy learns it very mechanically. So it totally does not sound like something that he would even say. Yeah. Strange, isn't it, how fact so often copies fiction? So you know it's going to sound odd. And there's so much basic comedy going on here. I was thinking, this is the moment in every sitcom where the dumb character is trying to impress somebody. You're right. And they're using only memorized knowledge. So they'll go, oh, yes, I... I love Renoir, born 1841 in France. And you all laugh because you're like, he memorized everything about him, but it's betraying how stupid he is. I feel like it's just classic sitcom writing going on here. Before the sitcom. That's right. So now we are at Mrs. Dingle's farewell dinner to Monsieur Tabolt. Lots of folks are there. The princess is there, of course, because Tabolt is going to announce their engagement at the party. Right. At first I was thinking, well, if it's a farewell party, then problem solved. You know, this guy's going to take off. But right away, his aunt tells him, the princess and Monsieur Tabolt got engaged this afternoon, so we're going to announce that at this party. Isn't it fascinating? <laughs> so the party is where he has to try his trick. You know, he's got to tell his story. Yeah, it's now or never. So over dinner, he has a hard time getting a word in edgewise. And finally, he finds his way into the conversation. <laughs> it's a super awkward thing. He's like, speaking of that, he said again so loudly and strangely that Mrs. Culverin jumped and an awkward hush fell over the table. Strange, isn't it? How often fact copies fiction. <laughs> <laughs> it's how I feel every time I you ever do that. You try to butt into a conversation oh, yeah. and accidentally everybody goes quiet. And now you and looks at oh, you. Man. Like, oh, I was, just I was hoping to... maybe I'd peel off one or two people. But yeah. now I got to go forward with this. And so Tommy does. He goes into a story, says, you know, I was in Central Park. Usual flashers that look like Harpo Marx, <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> but then I saw this procession of cats. They were walking the coffin through. There's a little crown on the coffin. He tells the story of the king of the cats. Yeah. And everybody just stares at him and looks at him <laughs> like he's crazy. Yes. And he's like, oh, I screwed up. This was not a good idea. Yeah. I look like an idiot in front of everybody because <laughs> he just told this preposterous story that is obviously like he's a bad liar too. Yes. So on top of it, it's just... Yeah, he seems really insane, be- especially if they don't know the story because he hasn't told them the punchline. All he did was say, I was in Central Park and there were some cats with a yes. coffin with a crown on it. <laughs> yes, they don't know the punchline. Uh, okay. <laughs> And then he's just sitting there like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. But Tabolt finally says something. He says, you are positive, I suppose, of what you saw this afternoon, Brooks. And that Tommy Brooks is his last name. And he goes, you, you are sure, quite sure, that the kind of crown you described was on the coffin. Yeah, Tommy says, of course, but... Then I'm the king of the cats, cried Monsieur Tabolt in a voice of thunder. And even as he cried it, the house lights blinked. There was a soft thud of an explosion that seemed muffled in cotton wool from the minstrel gallery. And the scene was lit for a second by an obliterating and painful burst of light that vanished in an instant and was succeeded by heavy, blinding clouds of white, pungent smoke. So poof, like a magician's trick. Just, <laughs> boom, he's gone. I didn't 
think that that it was going to go that way. I got to be honest, because it felt like it was obviously that was the expectation that that was going to happen. And yeah, you had to subvert that expectation. But then they kind of do. But then they don't. It totally does happen. It goes to plan. It goes to plan. Mrs. Dingle thinks uh, that it was some photographers that had got in and took a picture. You know, but I guess they still have the old style pop cameras and things. It blinds everybody for a minute. And she basically just gets on with making the announcement about the engagement when she looks over to Tabalt and he is gone. And basically everybody's got a different idea of what happened to Tabalt. Some yeah. think that they saw a fire that went up the chimney. Some people saw a giant cat that left out the window uh, without breaking glass. Tato says there was some chemical disturbance um, that happened over his chair. Another believed that the devil flew away with him. Like the devil came in, grabbed him, flew away with him. And yeah. Mrs. Dingle thinks maybe it's witchcraft or maybe some malicious ectoplasm dematerializing in the wrong cosmic plane. She's oh got boy. like some crazy... Idea. Yeah, some spiritualist thing going on there. And the only one that seems to have a reasonable explanation is Mrs. Culverin. And she thinks that he was an international burglar who thought that the jig was up and he just escaped. A cat burglar. <laughs> of course. So we move ahead and find out that Tommy doesn't end up marrying the princess, but a woman named Gretchen from Chicago. It seems that Princess Vivra Canarda was shaken by her fiance's disappearing and she went on some sea voyage uh, to kind of relieve herself of this anxiety that she has mm. but she was never heard from again of course there are the usual stories one hears of her a nun in a siamese convent or murdered in patagonia or married in trebizond but as far as can be ascertained not one of these gaudy fables has the slightest basis of fact i believe that tommy in his heart of hearts is quite convinced that the sea voyage was only a pretext and that by some unheard of means, she has managed to rejoin the formidable Monsieur Tabalt, wherever in the world of the visible or the invisible he may be. In fact, that in some ruined city or subterranean palace, they reign together now, king and queen of all the mysterious kingdom of cats. But that, of course, is quite impossible. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> what a great story. That was really fun. I'm glad... You know, we do typically weird fiction, horror stuff, some sci-fi, but it's nice to have a fun kind of comedic piece yeah. every once in a while. This is of a piece with those things, though. I mean, it's got a lot of the tropes that we confront time and time again. The, yeah. The animal person with the animal name, uh, the tiny reveal of what their real nature may be. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in here, but at the end of the day, it's just a fun, it's fun toying with this legend and having it happen in a real modern day at least for the author, modern day setting. Yeah. I want to thank Heather uh, Clinky for doing our readings this week. Oh, thank you, Heather. She always does such a great job. She does. And of course, I also want to thank some patrons. Me too. Uh, first person I want to thank is Matthew Edwards. Thanks so much. I want to thank Anne Anastasia. I want to thank Mike Brayak. I want to thank Sarah Zastro. Courtney Cahoon. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Sarah Marie Cooper 7. Nash Hot. I've got the hots for you. <laughs> I'm sure never heard that one before. I'd like to thank Jeremy Gutilla. I want to thank Tim Buckland Care. And of course, we cannot forget to thank Philip Welch. Thank you so much, everybody, for being part of the team, making this show possible. That's all we've got for you this week on our Creature Feature February. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs> <laughs>